You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When quoting great writers, we tend to use the present tense, even if they died centuries ago. Milton reminds us, as Shakespeare says, the literary convention recalls the truth that must have inspired it. Writers we revere feel like colleagues and confidants, as if they were speaking to us directly. This communion of strangers living and dead derives from the rather mystical quality called voice. The term voice appears constantly in criticism today. Sometimes people use it interchangeably with style, but usually it is supposed to mean more often nothing less than the writer's presence on the page. The term indeed may soon buckle under the weight it is asked to bear. Certainly, it has become discomforting to hear writers speak about their own voices. You cannot, must not, try to design and create a voice. The creation of voice is the providential result of the writer's constant self-defining and self-refining inner dialogue. When it happens, let someone else tell you and be grateful. Yet it is undeniable that good writing must have a human sound. Maybe that is the more modest word to keep in mind. Sound. You try to attune yourself to the sound of your own writing. If you can't imagine yourself saying something aloud, then you probably shouldn't write it. This is not the same as saying, write the way you talk. If we all did that, civilization would be in even worse shape than it is. This is closer. Write the way you talk on your best day. Write the way you would like to talk. Sometimes it will happen, in the middle of a difficult piece of writing, that one morning you wake up with a sentence in mind, and the sentence contains a sound that seems to unlock the problem for you. Speak to no one. Go and write that sentence down. The sound can be more useful than a multi-page outline. It is the sketch that precedes an architect's blueprints, the writer's equivalent of a vision. So listen to yourself, and it helps to keep one's ear tuned to the great voices that have preceded us, not to copy them, but to be inspired by them. Hunter Thompson once said that he taught himself to write by typing out the great Gatsby. This seems touchingly innocent, and Thompson's choice of models is odd, given the turns that his own style took. But probably he wasn't so naive as to think he was going to write like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Perhaps he knew that we all need writers from whom we learn lessons that go deeper than mannerism. Listen to yourself and listen to those writers who are so great that they cannot be imitated. You know, if you're if you're doing one of these things for uh, reading aloud for you know the, for uh, when they do recorded books mm -hmm. and you make mistakes like that, you go back and you do it again. And you do it again, <laughs> <laughs> and the whole day goes by. <laughs> it's pretty. Tracy Kidder is the author of The Soul of a New Machine, which won the 1982 Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award for Nonfiction. House, Among School Children, Old Friends, Hometown, Mountains Beyond Mountains, My Detachment, and Strength in What Remains. His new book, co-written with his longtime editor, Richard Todd, is Good Prose, The Art of Nonfiction. Thank you for joining me, Tracy. Oh, it's a pleasure. See you again. In your reading, you talked about voices, and there's a variety of voices in this book, and it struck me that the craft with which this book was put together is really amazing. There are so many different voices and so many subtle variations <laughs> that are somewhat invisible to the reader in terms of the reading experience. It all fits together. 
I'd like you to talk about things like writing about yourself versus writing as yourself, the collective and collaborative prose voice that you and Richard struck together. This is a, a big departure for you two in terms of the way you work together, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's true. You know, this year this is the 40th year that I've worked with this guy. And I mean, this was his idea, this book. I wouldn't have had the chutzpah to write a book about writing, I don't think, with, certainly without his help. Actually, I haven't had the chutzpah to write a book without his help for about 40 years. <laughs> it's interesting. We talk about voice, and of course it can mean so many things. It can even mean point of view. But point of view is, is really was really the biggest problem we had, one of the big problems we had in constructing this thing. I mean, the difference was that now there were two writers, and we tried the collective we, uh, but on the page, ex- with some exceptions, it it just became sort of authoritarian or it seemed pretty stuffy and stilted. So we had to try to find a way. That, there was a lot of stuff we wanted to talk about that wasn't sort of personal to either one of us, and we c- had to find a sort of assembled voice. So in many chapters, he wrote the, the draft, and I would do the editing or, or vice versa. It was kind of fun for me because it was a turning of the tables on him a species of revenge, I guess. But there were still things we wanted to talk about, stories we wanted to tell about writing, examples drawn from our own experience of you know how to deal with, oh, for instance, the, the, the whole business of finding a story, a, a story for a factual narrative, uh, what, what makes for a good story, and, and that sort of thing. And, and a lot of that, in our experience, you know, is particular certain projects that we've done together. So we hit on this idea of having sections of this book be in his voice or my voice, in the first person, I. Um, and we, what we did was we put those in italics and, and signed them with our initials. It's a pretty complicated little structure, but I, I'm glad you think it works. That's, I think, one of the things that uh, uh, makes the book so easily readable. And and it's interesting because there are many, many manuals for how to write better. And most of them are not particularly pleasant to read. Uh And and this is a book that is a a joy to read. Well, thank you. Tell tell me about doing that. Well, I... I think you know there, there was some. There's always some struggle. You know, everything, everything <laughs> connected with writing seems to involve some sort of struggle. Which is not to say that it's the hardest of jobs, but we worked on this for a very long time, much longer than I thought we should have had to, but we did, and wrote and rewrote. You know, part of it was to, first of all figuring out what should be in this book, and and then once we'd sort of settled on that, then it was really a matter of writing and rewriting something that we had done together for many, many years. I did the rewriting. He did the criticizing. In this case, I weighed in on the other side from time to time. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Mostly I had to try to... I'm, I'm a rewriter, and I write fast as a rule, you know, and I don't usually get stuck. He's a, a very slow writer, good writer, but a very slow writer. So I would my, my chief role with him was to push him, to, you know, to tell him to get the damn thing <laughs> written. You know, I don't know... We, He's a very lively, entertaining writer, and you know, and I do think that it adds something to have the personal experiences there. I mean, it gives it a, it grounds it in some way, you know, rather than just sort of going off into space and setting down general rules for writers, that, uh, which are usually uh, not very good rules, you know, like the prohibition against using the passive voice of the verb to be, which we have some sport with here. Uh, it seemed best to talk about, you know, our own little 
struggles and successes and failures, you know, trying to put books together. And, I, you know, I think maybe that's the, the most useful thing. I remember as a young writer, you know, you, it's so easy to feel defeated, and I suppose it might, have been, might be of some use to, for a young writer to see that it wasn't always perfectly easy. In fact, it's never easy. Talk about creating all the conventions for this book the italicized parts and the central narratives, figuring out which quotes to use. How much of this did you guys do before Richard sat down to write it? I mean, how much of this stuff was, was how much of the skeleton was here beforehand? What we had beforehand was um, were some essays that each of us had written. He'd written a few more about, uh, you know, topics like point of view. And I think early on, in the usual way, we deluded ourselves into thinking, well, we could just fix those up a little bit and then we'd have a book. And they got pretty much smashed, you know, in the the process. I think we—it's hard sometimes to remember, but I think I was the one who said, look, we really need these personal first-person stories. And I was the one—my first idea was that we really absolutely had to have a part of this book that was— my weighing in on being what's what it's like to be edited, learning how to be edited, and he, he should weigh in on editing, and the, that was inevitably going to become fairly personal, I suppose. But so we knew that there was going to be that part. There certainly had to be a part about, and I guess at some point we realized that we were writing about three different genres, three different types of nonfiction, which were that we'd worked into either together or separately. I I don't think of myself as an essayist, but he is an essayist certainly. So essays, memoirs, and these and factual narratives, which is what we spent most of forty years putting together, uh, the factual narratives, not narrative nonfiction. And we knew we were going to have to talk about those, and and we knew there would be chapters for those. But then there are more general issues, of course, like you know the whole question of of accuracy, and then and uh, you know attempts to get at the truth, which is something we feel lies beyond accuracy, or you know, sort of bigger, more general subjects. It was his idea, I think, to, that we ought to have a little chapter about beginnings. How, and I, I'm glad that that's there. There were just sort of general categories. We tried them out. We threw stuff away and rejected certain approaches, typically. One of the things I think that makes this book such a delight are the characters. You know, there are two great characters in this book, you and Richard, and you have this great setting that you give us at the Atlantic in the early days yeah, back yeah. in the 70s. And, and you really create, give us a sense, you know, there's a narrative in this book, which is not usual for these types of books, and a kind of a through line that takes us through to this culminating chapter of, you know, you versus him <laughs> at being edited. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I That was sort of what I, I, I hoped for. It wasn't easy to to find a to define a form for this book because there wasn't an obvious story. I mean, but I felt that there was a story, and there's a line near the end of the introduction which I think I, belongs to me, which is to say that these these things in themselves. I, let me see if I can find it if, if it's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these things that we learned are in themselves the story of a collaboration and a friendship. So you know, it's like. One of the great compliments I once got about a book I'd written, uh, a book called um, Mountains Beyond Mountains about Dr. Paul Farmer. There's a wonderful love story in there. But the editor who uh, at The New Yorker remarked on it, he said, you know, this is such an unusual love story because it's based on a, a passion for social justice between these two. And, you know, it is kind of unusual. You know, instead of um, 
the romantic talk they're talking about the problems of the poor and, and you know it's and, and in a way you know it's always good to have I, I think it's I think it's the best possible thing to when you talk about a relationship say is to talk about the material of the relationship itself what were you working on I was hoping something like that would would come out of this but I'm not sure that we had a that we really planned it quite that way as you were doing this talk about just writing yourself as a character uh, and being edited, I, I, this I, I assume at some points by Richard, he's looking at his character and you're looking at his mm-hmm, character. Mm-hmm. You guys are creating one another. You're writing as yourselves. This is a very complicated mix. And this is kind of like, I, it's like almost like getting married again after being married <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> well, he sort of, he did object to some of, the, some of my uh, characterizations of him, I have to say. I don't think he is as... Um, I don't think he has this. Th- he isn't used to being uh, written about. He, he doesn't have as thick a skin. I had written a memoir um, not too many books ago, although it took me about 15 years. And it's a very, it, it's really a memoir that I wrote out of embarrassment to cure embarrassment in a sense about my year as a soldier in Vietnam. And so I, I didn't find it hard to tell these anymore to tell these stories on myself about drinking too much and. And, and stupid, stupid behavior, and so on. I, in fact, I found it kind of amusing. It's sort of nice to go back and remember. It's very charming to read about your your times at, at the Atlantic, and and I, that, I love that place. I thought it's just so great, and you really, in a minimum amount of words, you set create this great setting for us. You give us these characters in this place, and that kind of really, I think, launches the book. Oh, great! Well, I'm glad. I I found that place uh, magical. And you know, I mean, it's, the Atlantic's no longer even in Boston, let alone in that old, that old tired mansion. Uh, but I just love that. I, for me, you know, I was a brand new writer. I, I wanted to be a writer, you know, and I was trying to figure out how to do it. And through a lot of the good offices of a writer named Dan Wakefield, and then with a lot of help from Todd, I found myself at the Atlantic. I didn't. I wasn't on a salary or anything. I got paid per article. But I had sort of free use of the offices. There were so many empty ones in the place. And, um, you know, and there were wonderful mementos after hours, these framed letters from all these writers who had written for the magazine. I mean, Mark Twain and and, and Henry David Thoreau and Emerson and Edith Wharton and, you know, just every major American writer from the late 19th through the, through the early 20th centuries. And it was exciting, you know, and you thought, well, I mean... One wants to be a little careful, not to say, "Well, just because I'm here, I mean, I'm not doesn't make me Mark Twain," but, but, but somehow or other, to I don't know, it felt like a sort of a magical place, and the fact that it was a little run down and uh, made it all the better somehow, made it older and more distinguished. You get us comfortable, and then happily, and I think interestingly, you begin at the beginning with beginnings. Right. And, and this is a, a an interesting portion because beginnings are really tough. And so I, one of the things you talk about, and I think this really interests me, this is one of the things when you get uh, start up the book to talk about the relationship between the writer and the reader. I don't think we hear too much about readers from writers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting the way you talk about the reader because you say, what you say is to write is to talk to strangers. Right. It's also, and perhaps we should have added this, the verb to imagine them. I, I mean, you know, when you, I always have a reader in mind and that's Dick Todd as when I'm, when I'm writing and some other friends, but he's my 
the main reader. There are not many people I actually show stuff to, but you know the other the other potential readers. There there are simply potential readers. They're hard to imagine. You don't know who they are, but but it is. I think there's a line in there where we say, you know, one of the first things you want to do is to try to imagine for this reader, whoever this reader is, an intelligence that it's that it's at least equal to the one that you imagine for yourself. You know, I think you know trust the reader to understand. So to understand and to trust the reader to be wanted to want to be taken on some sort of journey. And w one of the things we're arguing against is the too hyped up beginning. Um, you know, there's an enormous difference between writing for a newspaper where you really ought, ought to be and have to get the f central facts of the story into the very first sentence or the first paragraph anyway. But that's not always the best approach in a longer piece of nonfiction that has some literary aspirations. Uh, in fact, it, you know the central facts are the place to, to to go to, not a place to begin. You know, what I like the idea of what you say is that what calls attention to itself is the image you can do without. I think this is a <laughs> yeah a, a, I, a universal truth that must that's hard to accept. Well, we Todd and I both believe in what's you know what for lack of a better term might be called the plain style. You know, what George Orwell said about wanting his prose to be like a pane of glass. I have no <laughs> quarrel with flamboyant writers. Like L Vladimir Nabokov is one of my favorites. And he's, uh, and, and I think David Foster Wallace, Wallace is pretty, pretty flamboyant and terrific. It, you know, if it works, it works. It's great. But I, I think that even with those writers, you would, you would find that, that, they are not showing off. the The problem that 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 arises is it's a tonal problem. It's that sudden feeling that the writer is preening for you. Really, that for me, the great one of the great gifts of writing uh, is that getting outside of yourself. You know, and it. I, I'm not sure I can quite explain. I'm explaining this right, but I don't want uh, to things to be too flashy. I want to think about what I'm tr what I'm trying to convey, not, and what I'm trying to convey is not oh, admire me as a writer. In fact, I want you a lot of times to forget that you're being, that I'm doing anything here. You know, I want it to look easy. I want you to, I want to, I want to give you transport into, as Emily Dickinson might say, somewhere else. Well, that's that's what's so interesting is that that's the for I think most of us is the essence of the reading experience. You don't think about the writing, you don't think about the prose. You're just where the writer puts you, and right. that's where and that's a kind of a magical equation that's half the reader, half the writer, and and half something that can't really be easily expressed and probably shouldn't be. Right, and and the problem with the tone that calls attention to the writer. That to, to the kind of prose that does that is that it, I think it breaks that spell, among other things. And it can also cost you the reader's faith in, in, in you, you know. But that is not to say, that's not the same thing as saying that, that it ought to be, you know, written in pidgin English. I think, in fact, you know, you can delight in, in, in the sentences of a person like Nabokov, but you don't, but, you're, but what you're delighting in is, is the economy of expression, you know, the, perhaps the, the beauty of the, of the metaphor, the image. But, it's all still in service of 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 what it, whatever it is he's trying to do tell a story or depict what? a character you know you have a fabulous uh beginning of one of nabokov's uh stories to speak memory his, oh, his, wonderful his, yeah. and, and and having read that i thought 
Now I know where Martin and Amos got Time's Arrow from. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he was, he's worth, um, in the book office, worth a lot of one's attention, it seems to me. You talk about the Ghanaian word of trying. We yeah. say try to write. It means maybe hope that you're going to get something done. But yeah. they, they have something very different. And I, I love this idea that the reader wants to see you try, not trying to impress, but trying to get somewhere. Because I think that gets exactly what uh-huh. what you're hoping to do. Yes, exactly. That's right. There are different kinds of ways people approach narratives. It's the pantsers versus the plotters. Is the pantsers versus the seat of the pants. Oh, oh, oh the pantsers, <laughs> right? So, talk about the uh, approaching a nonfiction narrative. And you mean in the final, the final result, what you're aiming for, or how you do it, how you go about uh, doing well, it. Well, my case, it's mine is so insane that I, I, I think I, you know, I tell, uh, I think I tell somewhere in here the story of how. I remember very vividly a night when I was writing an article for The Atlantic and started sometime after my infant son was put to bed and remember vividly seeing sunlight coming across the floor in this room across this piles of crumpled paper which all contained attempts at at the first sentence of this article. Some of those identical, you know. And this kind of thing happened often enough to make me really fear it, you know. Wasting huge amounts of time getting nowhere, and my uh, I, I eventually somehow or other cultivated an opposite approach, which is to write really fast. And so what I what I typically do after I've done the, the most of my research and have found some way to get my notes in order where I can find things, and I take a huge I like to have I'd like to have a hundred times more material than I can use. You know, um, I'm not sure I've ever had quite that much, but an awful lot of material. But at that moment when I begin to write, I don't want to spend a lot of time writing a um, big, long outline. And I, I usually am pretty impatient to get going. Sometimes I'll, I'll make a list of things that I think should be there. And sometimes there actually was one time where I sat for a couple of days just sort of trying to hear this, this, uh, this book. But basically I just, I just plow in and I just start. And I don't turn away from it. You know, I, I might start in one one point of view, maybe a limited first person. Once I, once I say, okay, I'm starting to write. I try to write uh, fast. I don't look back. I don't turn away from any sort of new idea that seems promising, and I end up with usually an enormously overstuffed, chaotic, rough draft. That's the hardest part for me. Is, and I and I usually find that at least when I first start, you know, I can't spend much more than four hours actually writing. And I, but I try to get it done. I get, I, I write, I write a chunk, and I'll give it to Todd. It'll be a mess, and he'll, and he'll say it's fine. Keep going. <laughs> so it happens. And I somehow have found ways to kid myself into thinking that this time, this rough draft really is going to be close to the final draft, knowing all the time that it won't be, you know, and and certainly doing nothing to make that happen. But I try to get through it as fast as I can because, for a couple of reasons, I find that the hardest part of all, just to get this stuff out there. The other thing is that I really don't understand, I often don't know what what my story really is or what the heart, where the heart of it is or where the hearts of it are um, until I start to try to write it. And I also have often have a superabundance of material and I need to audition it to find out what works and what doesn't, what's literogenic, as a poet friend of mine uh, puts it. 
So, you know, even if everything in a rough draft gets thrown away, and rarely everything does, often most does, I don't feel like it's a waste of time at all. I mean, I feel like I've, I'm starting to get better at my book. And then after that, rewriting begins with, you know, usually we have a long sort of, we have long talks, and um, I start again. And then I, you know, I'm able to work at longer hours. At least this, when I was younger, anyway, I was able, you know, by the fourth or fifth draft to, to spend 13, 14 hours at it because it was the only thing I wanted to do. And that, that delight and of, of feeling something emerging from the chaos, of pulling it from the chaos, of uh, it, it's really quite a wonderful feeling. It must be a way a potter feels or something, you know, seeing something emerge from the clay. When you're writing these these ten drafts now, you're doing this now on computer. Yeah, now I am finally. Well, yeah, actually, I have now for since late eighties. So talk about the when that happened. That was a big shift for the way many people wrote. Yeah. Did that happen to you too? Well, I don't think so because by then I was. To me, the the biggest problem that computers posed for writers was that it made a, a certain kind of rewriting much too easy. That is just tinkering, whereas real rewriting, uh, as as I do write in this book, uh, th- that's part of rewriting. But there's a, m- a much more difficult and prob- and more important kind, which is throwing something away and starting over. And as I said, I don't feel like that that should feel like a waste of time. I indeed, you know, rewriting is this enormous privilege that writers have. We can there's no other department of life that I can think of where you get to take back what you've said and figure out how to say it better before anybody but your poor editor has to see it. You know, I. But by the time the computer came along, and I saw this, I was doing a little editing for a magazine since defunct that Dick Todd was running at the time, and I saw writers, young writers doing this, taking <laughs> taking paragraphs that didn't work and just moving stuff around or taking whole paragraphs and moving them somewhere else and thinking that they had solved the problems when, of course, they hadn't even begun to, to, to figure out what the problem was. But because uh, this is what Todd and I had already been doing for what you know, a better part of a decade by that time, it, it wasn't so tempting to me. The great advantage of a computer for me initially was that I no longer had all the, all of this typescript or even longhand stuff. I used to write. I wrote one book almost entirely draft and almost entirely in longhand, but I was always so terrified of losing it that I'd go and get it all Xeroxed, and then I'd have to find some place to hide it so that it wouldn't get destroyed. And, you know, once I, once I adopted the computer, I could stick some little disk in there, and, and I had a copy. It was kind of nice and reassuring. And, you know, I, I do think that it's possible. I just don't know that, that writing on a computer is it, it changes the way people write. And Todd thinks it does. He thinks it it, that it's easier to think in, as you say this, in paragraphs. In any case, I haven't noticed it. I, I you know, it, it just, it doesn't seem all that different from me to me from typing on a on a typewriter, electric typewriter. Anyway, one of the things you say is that the for characters, the goal is to get characters off the page and into the reader's head, so the reader speaks to the characters aloud. And I'd like you to talk about creating characters, you have this massive reams of research. Mm-hmm. And these are this is this also kind of connects to something you say too, that a subject is not a story. Right. And you have to discover the characters and the story within the subject you've chosen. I think that's right. For me, again, you know, this, not everybody does things this way. I, I almost always have begun not with a subject but with a character. 
and then I get interested in the subjects that preoccupy that character. They become the setting in a way, you know, I mean, part of the setting anyhow. So, you know, if you're going to write about someone like Paul Farmer, you got you to gotta learn something about antibiotic resistance and tuberculosis and the distribution of d infectious disease in the world. You know, I mean, that's important. <laughs> that's part of, who, of, of the world that he lives in. But that wasn't the primary thing that interested me. The primary thing that interested me was, who is this guy and why is he doing what he's doing? The, the techniques for trying to bring people to life on the page are really off the page and into the reader's imagination. I mean, you really need the reader's help, uh, obviously. And, and I, I guess there's no department of, of storytelling that, that requires more help from the reader, actually, if you think about it. So you don't... I mean, what, the problem is there are no real rules for this, and sometimes it just strikes me as amazing alchemy. Graham Greene, one of my favorite writers, has a, almost never describes a character in any detail at all. Sometimes he'll give you one or two little telling details, and yet those characters seem really vivid to me. Same thing is true of Jane Austen. Um, and, and then there are other writers who give you tons of information, and those characters are vivid too. Tolstoy, you know, I'm talking mostly about fiction writers, great fiction writers, because that's where the greatest library of, of, of literary characters exists, and, and every good nonfiction writer ought to spend some time there in that library, it seems to me. But, you know, I suppose there are rules of thumb but they're all sort of meant to be broken. So, you know, we often, you often hear if you're learning how to write show, don't tell. Well, my great college teacher, the, the poet and great translator Robert Fitzgerald once said to me, that's a good rule and it's meant to be broken. And it is, I mean, because there are, one of the ways in which you can get at a certain, at a character is, is um, by actually telling, you know, by, uh, by pulling back and, and talking in a even in a general way sometimes so finding and i'm not i'm i'm, I'm kind of this is kind of failing because i can't i'm not thinking right now of a good example but there are well there are any there are any number of ways to, to do it and you know I, I you know it depends on all these other things too point of view is really crucial I think I have a pretty good portrait of a school teacher in a book of mine called Among School Children. But boy, was it hard to, to, to get at. And the reason it was so hard was point of view. The, I couldn't find the right place to stand from which to describe her or to tell, the, tell, tell stories about her. And, and, it, and, and the places that I, where I kept, that I kept trying to stand, it seemed to be condescending, um, you know, and so on. So, so point of view, where you're standing when you're doing this, has everything to do with how well you can get this character to life. We, I, I made a, a similar sort of discovery with uh, my book *Strength and What Remains*, where I had tried to depict characters through the eyes of the main character, mainly, but I didn't know enough about, you know, his. It's not so much I didn't know his feelings toward those people, but I, he, he, he wasn't good at. I, I mean, somehow or other, my attempts to do that just were falling flat. And and then, um, but it then occurred to me that I'd known those people. I'd interviewed them. I'd spent time with them. I had pretty vivid pictures of them. So adjustments had to be made so that I could be the person delivering those people to you in part. And and that required changes in point of view and 
and structure and so on. So it's limited it's third altogether. person and limited first person. You have these uh, interesting uh, technical terms. One of the things I think <laughs> that you do really well in this book is give us you um, and. Uh, Richard Todd, create your own jargon. A lot of oh, these yeah, terms yeah. I've never heard before, and they're great. <laughs> we have our own little dictionary. Yeah, actually, uh, if someone had <laughs> were to come in and watch us talking, it'd be sort of like me coming in and watching uh, software engineers talk to each other. I, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm working on that right now, but, but you know, it'd be utterly mystified. You know, what is, what is a time passer? What is a... What does that mean? You said there's a bump here, and and this you want to float this in time, and uh, you know it goes on and on. And what's an exterior? We have we have all this talk, and then we, and we have our little um, our little rituals from the past. It's 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 kind of nice. Uh, uh, you know, you can almost it, you know a lot of people who've worked together for a long time do talk in code, and it's 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 one of the delights actually of of a relationship like that. I think. Well, that's one of the, I think, the delights of this book is it gets us into this great relationship that you guys have that's a, a friendship but also a professional relationship. There's yeah. a bit of, I wouldn't say antagonism, but there's a push-me-pull-you thing happening. Yeah, there. I feel like they're built together, you mm-hmm. know. But, yeah, there, there, is some, there <laughs> often was some tension, although I, I, I think we never, um, you know, we've— He's spoken sharply to me from time to time, but never, I don't think we ever raised our voices at each other until near the very end of this book. And I, I actually, I was tired and I wasn't feeling too well. And he had, was asking me to change something. And I actually yelled at him over the phone. That was the first time I'd ever done that. <laughs> so, but, but that's pretty good over 40 years. I mean, most people aren't married after 40 years, you know. <laughs> uh when you talk about uh, memoirs, uh, this is a very popular form of writing now, and you give a lot of really great advice for this. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about your memoir, My Detachment. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things I think that uh, makes this so interesting is that uh, your memories embarrassed you. Yes. Well, I I had set out, I think it was around 1985, it seems to me, maybe somewhere around there, to I thought, you know, I should write a little. I should write a little memoir, memoir about my year as a soldier in Vietnam. For one thing, I wasn't in combat, and you know, you get a little tired of. After a while, since everything you read about something like the Vietnam War is about someone who was in combat, you begin to wonder, You begin to get a very distorted picture of the war. So, if there was a sort of serviceable aspect to this, it was that you know this would be the much more common sort of story. But there were. I, for some reason, I was drawn to tell, telling it, and I had told Todd some of the stories. I wrote a bit. I wrote maybe 60, 70 pages, and he was quite amused by some of my stories, but not so amused by what I had written, and uh, it just wasn't working. And the problem wasn't clear to me at the time, It's just except that a, a good friend of mine, a good writer friend who wrote to me at a certain point. He'd, he'd grown up Catholic, very Catholic. And he said, and, and was a lapsed Catholic, and he, he wrote me, I showed him these 60, 70 pages, and he said something to the effect that this reminded him of the phoniness of Catholic confession. What I think I was really trying to do was to was to distance myself, was to, was to assert almost that, that this young lieutenant and uh, who was this bumbling and uh, almost narcissistic young lieutenant was that bore very little relation to the person I had become. Maybe we weren't even related at all. And you know, 
it was it was in a way it was a sort of the elementary idea of you know sort of fishing for compliments oh wasn't i terrible oh no you weren't so bad you know <laughs> anyway it really didn't wasn't working and i just put it away and went back to, to uh, did another book and then pulled it out again and worked on it for a while and put it away again and then pulled it out and actually finished a draft of it and then sat down with todd and he was I don't know. I gave him lots of material to tease me about the, this this story, so I, he wanted me to do it. He was amused by it, so I I, I really did did it did it at some point. I think it was fifteen years or 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 more. Be uh, yeah, it was around fifteen, eighteen years after I first started it that I pulled that I was able somehow to to face the fact that yeah, this was me. And and it didn't bother me that much anymore, and and there was no so there was no more sort of phony whipping this guy on the page anymore. I was just trying to be there, try to repossess that person, and I think it, you know, I, I'm rather proud of it. it the, the reactions to that book were, were strongly mixed. My mother hated it. Um, <laughs> other things, others, and there's some critics who did, but I rather like it. I I think it's pretty honest. I mean. It, this does raise another question. Maybe is it all right if I wander off into the, uh, sure. these? This is the, why the whole question here. of honesty and memoir. Memoir is, you know, we call it. I, I, we, we categorize it as nonfiction, but it's a funny kind of nonfiction after all. It's made, first of all, it's named for memory, the most plastic of our faculties. There are conventions in memoir now that, you know, really do sort of violate the dictates of strict nonfiction, certainly of journalism. Uh, people will give you long, long skeins of dialogue that they couldn't possibly have remembered verbatim, you know, in memoirs. But I think that that's an, a, almost a convention that you either, you know, I mean, you either stop reading the memoir or you just accept it as, you know, being like the paper mache sky at the back of a stage, right? I like that analogy because that's, <laughs> that's it. Or, or, the, or, or I think I also said the tendency of people in operas to break into song. <laughs> But there are there are there was what there's one memoirist I'm thinking of one great memoir by Jeffrey Wolf called The Duke of Deception one of my favorite books this is a book about a, 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 his father was a con man and I think it must have occurred to to Jeffrey Wolf that you know the reader might think well, like father like son that's a very carefully reported memoir at least it on this on on the face of it when you read it you he shows you how he knows how he knows what he says he knows he, he conducts interviews and the only extended pieces of dialogue come from uh, come from those interviews not from sheer, sheer memory in my case you know i had some um i had some documents so i knew dates of certain things and uh, i did have this ridiculously silly novel that i had written um as a kind of psychological guide, uh, it was a tissue of lies in a funny sort of way. But, but for the rest, I had my own memories. I I realized I could go find some of the men who were in, in my detachment, uh, but I also realized that their memories would probably be as faulty as mine, if not faultier. So I just decided that my that my rule had to be that I would be honest, faithful to my memories, the the embarrassing ones particularly. I wouldn't sort of try to hide from them. Just, just to pause over, the, over this whole idea of memoir, though, I mean, and leave aside all the, um, the, the, the fraudulent memoirs, the out-and-out out out fraudulent ones, you know, where a person says, I was in jail for a year, and you find out he was in jail for a day. You know, uh, hoax memoir. That's, 
we just forget about that stuff. But some of the best memoirs, uh, and we, we spent some time in here on uh, Frank Conroy's great book, Stop Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, there is imaginative reconstruction that goes on there, it, it seems to me. And, I, and, and if you do it well, I think it's perfectly permissible. Um, you say that the impulse for memoir is a fictive impulse. Well, to some degree it is. Uh, well, maybe it, maybe the impulse isn't. F- yeah, uh, it, in some cases, you know, I, I think there there's a large. I, th- I think I think there's latitude in this in this genre, as as what I guess I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I also think, though, that that there are ways in which, um, and the, the the last part of this chapter is of of some importance to me. It's about a young man, Pacifique. Pacifique. That's a powerful anecdote. It's really. He's a wonderful young writer from a country that, I mean, he grew up in, for 14 years from the age of from the age of four till he was about 18. He lived in amid civil war. I mean, he was hunted from time to time. He saw unbelievably horrible things. When I got to know him, you know, he he was learning English. He was a brilliant kid, and he turned out to have a great gift for storytelling, which I think had come from his. Um, being interested in the elders in his in his African village, and who used to tell these very convoluted stories that always had a moral. They were always supposed to be true stories, though they were never true stories exactly, but kind of moralistic tales, but wonderfully convoluted and, and structured. And so he just had a knack, and he started writing these stories about his own experiences. And the ex- it was supposedly an exercise in improving his English, but it. it quickly became something more than that for him. And when I spoke to him about it later, after he'd had some real success with these, with some of these uh, pieces, um, he, sa- he talked about the, the power it gave him over some of his memories. I mean, the, the to- we all have those kinds of memories that, you know, I think I call them, we call them gusts of memory. Those ones that you don't, you don't ask to come back, they come back on you and there you are. And you're stuck there, you know, in this moment. Um, some some of them are, some of the ones I had from Vietnam were ones that made me want to run into the bedroom and put head over, my head under a pillow, but his were much more horrifying. And I, I think he had found that writing about those, not just about that memory, but but the but what surrounded it, but turning it into a piece of writing had gave him great gave him a certain kind of power over it that's the way he thought of it his power over that um, who was it was it was it in there you, I think it you say that uh, memoir is the ability to finally control things that, <laughs> that you could never had control of when they happened well, I, to I was totally quoting Jean Berger uh, who, who in that a beautiful book about a doctor where he says that, uh, that perhaps this is the the true the, the the big attraction of autobiography that the events over which you you know you had no control you finally have control over, um, but, but that doesn't mean that you distort them. And I think mm-hmm. that the image that we use at the end is to say, look, you know, this is it's not that you that a, a, a writer like Pasifik is making stuff up. It's he's what he's doing is something like what a a, a fine craftsman does in building a beautiful desk, say, you know. The desk is made of 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 that of that same wood that that you brought from the lumberyard or out of the forest, but it's but it, that desk is forever different from the wood. Um, you know, it's uh, not 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 fraudulent, but different. It's beautiful. 
Yeah. You also talk about uh, Janet Malcolm in her yeah. book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Yes. Uh, this, this is an important <laughs> <laughs> and divisive the, book. Yeah, and it's the inevitable, an inevitable subject if you're talking about uh, factual narratives, you know, I mean, long-form reporting, whatever we call it, narrative mm-hmm. nonfiction. It's a book that, you know, a lot of us journalists love to hate. Um, it's a book that really needs, though, that, that makes points that really you, you must not try to uh, sweep under the rug. You know, it's, she's making some very good points. Uh, there are, I have, we have, a, and, and I, I think her basic point is that this is basically a con game between the author and the subject, you know, in nonfiction. You, mm-hmm. you find your way into somebody's life and, and then you betray that person. I, I don't think it's you know in the case that she that she uses to to make this point is of course uh, a really bizarre case and you know it's sort of like the old lawyer's adage you know that that interesting cases make bad law you know it's a it's probably a bad example uh, to draw great sweeping conclusions from because it's so unusual and strange um, although you know there are elements that are that are probably uh, universal but I think she. I think the book is tendentious, in, in a sense. I mean, she's really this is this is the way it is, and there's no other. There's nothing else to say about this. I think she seems to willfully oblivious to the really great work that sometimes comes out of these, you know, uh, writing about real people. And I, as I said, I think the I think the case is idiosyncratic, and extreme. I also think that there are ways. If this is a con game, you know, most of the people, at least in my experience, you know, you're, if you're writing about adults, you know, and you and you take some pains to try to tell them what they might be getting into, I mean, you, uh, I think it's it's okay. I feel okay about that generally, you know, if you really uh, try hard to warn them, give them their Miranda warnings, and uh, you know, and I I don't think that every writer um, inflicts pain on you know on subjects unnecessarily that is if it has nothing to do with the story why would you why would you say something you know that might be true but but terrible i i have no uh, or you know really damaging but, but it's a clearly it's a it's a difficult area to to be operating in i mean it's the hardest part of my job and and it is something one worries about i i think you ought to worry about it after all these aren't fictional characters who whose lives essentially end at the when the book ends, you know. That's a, that's a great have, point you make. But you know, one thing I'd say is that <clears throat> having read this book, you call it the art of nonfiction. But actually, I think this everything you write about in here is pretty much equally applicable to fiction. And this is a really useful book for anybody who wants to write anything, or especially also for people who just want to read because this. The insights into the reading experience, what what readers experience, and from and from your point of view as the writer, I think enhance when I I'm reading a novel now, having just finished reading this book, and I have a really different I think uh, feel for what's going on in the novel and the way I'm experiencing mm-hmm. the novel as a result of reading this book. Oh, well, that's great! I I really did. I remember we talked about this, hoping that it wouldn't be just for writers, but Perhaps also for readers. I mean, one of the things that that has always bothered me a little bit is that, you know, when you hear the term nonfiction, which is an unfortunate term since it tells you what it isn't, you know, uh, but as John McPhee has pointed out, one of the heroes of this genre, um, the 
people, you know, a lot of times it's a, in a kind of dismissive way. Well, that's where you go to get facts, to get information, or maybe misinformation. And and of course, one of the things I just we were just hoping to remind some people, the people who were interested uh, of, is the fact that there's always there's a lot more available, and there always has been, or for a very long time there has been. This kind of nonfiction storytelling, and of course the essay and the memoir, these have very long and distinguished lineages, and there's real literature in there, you know, in in the uh, in those lineages. You know, well, so. there's there are authentically thrilling reading experiences. Mm -hmm. It really mm -hmm. doesn't matter what the genre is. It doesn't matter what the subject is. What <laughs> it matters is is when you sit down to read it, what happens in your tiny brain as a reader I agree. <laughs> as a result of what the writer has written. And I think that's the big, what this book does a great job of is give us an idea of how two brilliant people who create books, the gives them, you create yourselves as characters for us. And by doing so, uh, you give us an insight into books. I think that's really interesting. And as a writer, you can walk away with this, and hopefully it's not a flowers for Algernon effect. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but you feel a lot smarter, like you know maybe just have an instinct better. This is a – as opposed to manuals that say do this, do this, do this, do this. This – you just give us a feel and try to say maybe these should be your instincts. Uh, you know, the one caveat I have about that is that I do think it matters. Ultimately, what matters is the reader's experience, you know, whatever you call the the, the genre that you're reading in. But I, but it, for me, at least as a reader, it does matter if, if a book is advertised, described to me as nonfiction. You want I, it to I, be nonfiction. I, I, I do want <laughs> it to be nonfiction. And I, I had this really, one of the most disconcerting experiences I've had as a reader uh, was reading Bruce Chatwin's The Song Lines. I don't know if you know that book. It's about Australian Aborigines, and it's a wonderful book. And I read it with great pleasure, thinking all along that it was nonfiction. And then in little fine print at the end, it said this is a work of fiction. And I felt as though I ought to go back and read it all over again because they do, you do bring different expectations, I think. And I think those ex expectations matter. Mm. McPhee puts mm -hmm. this very nicely um, he says, you know, things that would be just utterly banal in fic in fiction, work can work wonderfully well in nonfiction, mm -hmm. because they actually happened, you know. And and it's and for that reason, you don't want to abridge the accuracy of of, of what you've written. I mean, I we believe Todd and I in, in factual accuracy as a starter. You know, it's not the same thing as truth, of course, but um, and you know. I'm sure, I know, in fact, that I've made factual errors in books that I've written. Probably every book that I've written has got some factual error in it. But I never made them on purpose. And I think that for those who think it's just perfectly fine to to make stuff up and then and not tell the reader that you're doing that until way at the end, or maybe never, I think they ought to remember. I mean, you know, I'm not against experiments. You know, and, I'm, and I agree with you, the most important thing is the reader's experience. But it seems to me that if you take on the freedoms of fiction, you also take on some of its obligations so that so that the quality of the inventions themselves uh, are, are in question. Anyway, it, we could go on and on about that, but, but I, you know, I do think that, that as a starting place, it, it's not always, it's not that it's always so easy either to find, the, to, to, to achieve factual accuracy, to find out what really did happen. Indeed, it can be almost impossible. 
one of the things you did, so I'm, I'm thinking now uh, 30 years ago, was to give the first accurate description of what is now a culture that uh, pretty much <laughs> dominates our world. It's yeah. called, uh, you know, the the world of software programmers, the world of computer programmers, the world of high-tech engineering. You, mm-hmm. in the soul of a new machine, you honed in on it, you identified it, you brought it forth, and essentially this is the inception point for, I think, much of the literature that's been fiction and nonfiction that has been written about that world and about the Internet. Really? I, well, I wasn't aware of that. I, <laughs> I, You know, it was an interesting story for me. The great thing about my job has been that I can change the subject entirely every four years or three or four <laughs> years and keep the same job. So I, I, I ran from that from that whole world, and now I'm coming back to it. I, I'm, I'm working on a project, uh, I think, that has to do with software engineering, which I know nothing about. Oh, I was writing about hardware engineers, and they, there were, there were some software, of course, at the very, at the level of the machine itself back then. But uh, tell us what you're working on now. Man. Well, I, I, I I'm, can, not a, I'm not, I'm not, at liberty to tell you exactly oh. what it is. It's about a per- person who's involved in, in high tech, uh, very fascinating and. Um, extremely intelligent and generous person, uh, but I, 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 I wish I could. I, you know, at some point, I will. but well, I, but I, but I think he'd rather that it just stay between us for now. Uh, how long do we? Till... About three years. Usually, you know, I just, I'm just getting started. I'm just getting started. But the the um, that book was um, had a great effect on my life. It made it possible for me to write for a living. You know, and I was very lucky. Really, really lucky. Well, I think that uh, this book shows us that it wasn't luck, that it was uh, a skill and also uh, perseverance. That's one of the main things that you that that one can take out of this book is that you're a guy who is going to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite till you got it right. Well, I think if you know, talent is a funny word, whatever it is. But I do believe that perseverance perseverance is a talent, you know, and, and I did have that. It's true. But I have a lot of friends who are wonderful writers who simply don't make, can't make a living as writers. And I think if you can't, if you do that, you know, we're talking about something entirely different from quality at that at that point, mm-hmm. almost entirely different, having commercial success. And that really does depend an awful lot on luck. At least it has in my lifetime. I think it probably doesn't. Uh, I think most writers who've who've been able to write for a living would acknowledge luck, the power of luck. Um, but you know, it's a little like fishing. You you can't have can't catch any fish if you don't have your line in the water. You know. Um, well, uh, we as readers are lucky to have you as a writer who's successful enough to get published and give us these books, like your latest book. Thank you. Good prose. Thanks. I've been speaking with Tracy Kidder. His new book, co-written with his longtime editor, Richard Todd, is Good Prose, The Art of Nonfiction. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it was really fun to talk about these things, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.